Well, hello, folks. Welcome to the Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And a lot of uh, exciting things I want to touch on in this introduction and then get right into the interview. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Miles Neal. It's a bit of a different conversation in that we didn't have a book to go off of, but we had a, uh, a book in preparation that we were going off of, and I'll read an excerpt from that in a bit. Uh, but first, I want to introduce to you a couple of things that are happening in the world of the Sacred Speaks. One thing to know about is that my colleague and bandmate and classically trained pianist and soon-to-be newly minted Jungian analyst and dear friend Rodney Waters and I are leading a workshop at Esalen February 27th through March 3rd. Check that out. Portals and Pathways, Ecstatic Experience, Music in the Red Book. And uh, it's going to be a kind of multimedia performative um, experience where we're both doing lecture, but also um, music interludes that will seek to bring about the experiences that we're talking about, you know, to, to lightly touch on the capacity that we have to stand beside ourselves and, um, and look at our lives in a di from a different perspective. So I'm needless to say, totally stoked about that happening. Please come out, check it out. There's a link below. And, um, and again, that's coming up in two months. So pass it along, pass it around, let people know about it, talk about it where you can. We love all support and uh, and love that we can get. Not to mention, we're really excited about it. Writing a bunch of songs, we'll be performing a uh, an album that we wrote on a story taken from Jung's Red Book, and we're we're going to be looking at primarily Jung's experience of active imagination and the Red Book, but using that as a model for how to do that work ourselves. Not just looking at the Red Book, but actually how to begin to integrate that process. He was definitely an advocate of quote, writing your own red book, so to speak. On that note, we are also going to be, uh, I will be interviewing next week a fellow by the name of Dr. Murray Stein. I've interviewed him before on the podcast, but I started thinking about the red book and who I'd really want to chat with uh, to dig into the red book. And I'm kind of leaning on um, Dr. Stein's knowledge and experience of the red book. Also, he's he was really featured in Peter Kingsley's work, Catafalque, and I, I wanted to talk to him about that because Peter Kingsley was pretty, um, he didn't pull any punches, and thankfully he didn't, but, but Murray was really left standing, and, uh, and I want to talk to him about that, what Murray has to say that from a classicist perspective um, that would allow for him to remain standing in that uh, bloodbath. <laughs> Check out that book too, Catafalque is, uh, is amazing. So let me tell you a little bit about our um, our candidate tonight, our participant tonight, Miles Neal. He's a friend, and also I've interviewed him before. Check out uh, in the episode, I don't know, in the 70s, I think. Um, Dr. Miles Neal is a Buddhist psychotherapist in practice, founder of the Contemplative Studies Program, international speaker, and host of the Wisdom Keeper podcast. He's taught psychology and meditation at prestigious university hospitals, including Harvard, Columbia, and Cornell. He's author of Gradual Awakening from 2018, co-editor of Advances in Contemplative Psychotherapy from 2017, and he's currently writing his next book, Return with the Elixir, or Return with Elixir, Journey of Conscious Death and Rebirth, out 2023. So it's there that I would like to offer you an excerpt from his book, because this lines up perfectly with what we're talking about today. When they say you have to die before you claim the treasure and return with elixir, they mean a total death. It's not hyperbole. The journey assumes an utter shattering of self and world. Everyone goes through the hard times in life, but not everyone is heroic. 
In fact, heroines are few and far between and will always be rare. Otherwise, the elevated status of hero would become diluted and represent nothing special. The death we're talking about is when you lose yourself and everyone. Most, most significantly, you lose yourself. Loss renders you unrecognizable to yourself. Every familiar structure that stabilizes and orients, every hope and dream that inspires are blown out. This is why they call it the dark night of the soul. And it's not just dark for an hour, a day, or a week. It can be extended and excruciating episode of your life. Remember Odysseus was separated from family and home, lost at sea for ten long years. You don't get to go on a psychedelic trip for a weekend in Peru and come home transformed. Nor can you expect to go on a pilgrimage for two weeks and think you've found the treasure. This isn't a two-hour Disney movie where the good guys always win. Victory is costly and you can't buy the elixir. So what have you wagered on your journey, really? Yes, you spent a bit of money and took a little time off, but have you risked and lost much? Have you lost your business, left your spouse, confronted terminal illness, sank into a depression, been stabbed in the back, or worse, in the heart by your own tribe? Have you fallen into the abyss of insanity? The level of intensity and duration of your ego death are the non-negotiable price you pay for the treasure of strength, clarity and conviction that you are the hallmark, <laughs> and conviction that are the hallmarks of the heroine. Once you've been destroyed, you have to claw your way out of the abyss. That's where strength is earned. Once you've been cast away at sea for years longing for shore, clarity about your values and priorities naturally emerge. Once you've been betrayed, you have to accept the darkness in others and yourself and walk upright henceforth with both eyes now wide open, fearing no one. Dr. Miles Neal. Thanks, Miles. And thank you, Miles, for this conversation. Miles has been a kind of comrade in the in this work, we've been talking a lot about uh, this idea of coming down from the mountaintop and the, the, the need for the intentional, present, mindful caretaking toward preparation um, for the inevitability of these overwhelming experiences that certainly are in psychedelics but are just baked into our natural living experience, love and loss, life and death, um, but, but also coming down. Um, and how do we reintegrate once we suffered a death or are grieving or have lost somebody, a breakup, a betrayal? How do we reintegrate into a life that's not the same as it was before? And so that was the focus of our conversation today. We wanted to just talk through our experiences and our perspectives as psychotherapists um, and as individuals who are curious about this subject matter and um, just present it to you today. So thanks for being here. Uh, check out the music at the very end of the episode by Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. It's the theme song for the podcast. Um, as always, thank you for the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. This is a boutique integrative wellness clinic that my wife and I started. Check it out at thecenter4has.com. Uh, it's, uh, it's really wonderful to work with the team that we've got, um, a, a group of, of very engaged, seeking professionals who um, not only want to do their work knee to knee with the uh, clients and patients they work with, but also expand the offerings of healing and uh, and self awareness that we can provide as a as a wellness center. So uh, thanks for being here. Share everything, please. Um, this the the podcast is really starting to cook. I, I've got a lot that's coming out in the new year, um, including a new wi website that's going to release in January. It looks great. Um, by the next time we speak, I, I will be letting uh, I'll be releasing it. So thanks for being here. Thank you for continuing this process. If you're new, welcome. Uh, check it out. Look through all the catalog. Um, share what you can. Please subscribe. And, uh, and for now, we'll leave it there. Uh -huh.
<laughs> That's all you need for the intro, man. Just a good chuckle. It's good to see you. You're smiling. You too. I know it's two I different settled... sides of the planet, but we're I'm... connected, brother. We're connected. Oh man, and I'm set. I'm settling in from a uh, traffic and chaos, and it's just good to see your face. And uh, you in Bali, and uh, and a full shift of clients, and uh, I yeah, I know, man. Yes, and so yeah. I want to like this. This is really cool, and I want to just go. I want to just go, and then we're going to chart our way, and some of which we've kind of bullet pointed, but others we, we'll see what happens. Um, but I, I want to dive straight into it, and so I want to start with a, a an idea that we hear a lot about, and you know I'll preface this by saying one of the interests that I have in psychedelics is, as a psychotherapist, is that I think, I think there's something that's um, to be learned from these experiences that tend to have a mythic framework, and to to kind of learn from these processes and what people experience, but more importantly, how the therapists relate to the trauma and the grief and the overwhelmment and the fears and just the the suffering that exists in our lives. I, I always thought I'd be a better clinician if I, I, I would be a better clinician for just gener, general life changes and stages of existence and development. I'd be better prepared to navigate or help people navigate through those by going into these very intense um, experiences. And so, so let's start kind of at the core that we hear a lot about. Like, w will you talk about what you hear when this concept of ego death comes up? And what is ego death and where, where will that take us? Ego death seems to me the most basic misnomer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cliche to me and it, it doesn't ever get unpacked. I, I never use those, that term. Mm -hmm. I, I understand what's being pointed to, uh, this sort of dissolving of the self, the dissolution of the fixed sense of reality, the structural breakdown that is part and parcel, part of the spiritual transformative process, no matter what, what as a tradition you're coming from. Hmm. Uh, but I think, listen, you and I both know you can't function without an ego. So what the fuck are we really talking about? You know, like if we don't have an ego, we wind up in the loony bin um, <laughs> and we can't function. So what it's just, it's not, it's not even a coherent, actually, it's not even a coherent way of understanding it. There's, uh, uh, if, it, if we take it literally, the, the ego functions as a mediator between internal and external world or between civilizational values and internal drive, let's say. Well, if you, if you dissolve that, then where, what are you left with? You're basically have no rudder, no sail without an ego. Who are you without an ego? And is ego such a profound thing to really get rid of and what happens when you don't have one <laughs> mm -hmm. on the other hand <clears throat> every esoteric tradition follows the uh the pathway of salve et coagula which i'm a big fan of that alchemical model because uh it runs through the entire duration of my new book return with the elixir which is really about a synthesis of Jung, campbell and tibetan alchemy 
And you find every, in every tradition, you find this, every esoteric tradition, you find this process of dissolving, of drawing energies, first dissolving or fragmenting, breaking apart or breaking down and then extracting an essential nectar or accessing something essential and then reconfiguring something. So, mm -hmm. yes, I mean, there, the ego death is necessary, but it's, it's just not all that useful, I think, at a very deep level. It's okay in pop culture, I guess, but it's not, it's not perfectly accurate because there is something about the need for the ego. I mean, what is it that we're trying to do with our clients? Do we really want them to be egoless? And then what would differentiate them from other people who are egoless? Once there's no ego out of the way, what differentiates you from me? Um, maybe it's a necessary stage on the journey, but I don't think it's the end point in and of itself. I actually think the return is the return to some more flexible or malleable identity, but that identity that you return to is still, it has an individual character. It has its own predisposition. As I said in a lot prior conversation with you, you're, you're a musician and you're a Jungian analyst and you're into psychedelics and you're not the same ego as a therapist down the road nor should you be, nor does the world need you to be. Like, we need you to be an individual. We need you to be fluid in that individuality, but still what makes you special and what your gifts are, are part of your ego. So it's, it's you know, it reminds me, if you don't mind me making a digression of the, one of the words that happens in Buddhism, they like this word, Atman and Anatman. Atman is the soul. Before the Buddha came on the scene, the Vedic traditions had this concept that there was a very, very essential soul to each one of us. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha's discovery, one of the greatest discoveries a human mind can make is this insight into emptiness, into the lack of substantial reality, into the fluid or quantum nature of reality. And when the Buddha made that discovery, he realized and said, anatman, no soul. And, and it's been taken out of context to mean, well, that there's no soul, then there's nothing there. One slips off the precipice into a complete abstraction or a complete abyss of nothingness. But actually what he was pointing to, and I think what you're trying to elicit from this dialogue around egolessness or the de egoless death is that there's no essential, unchanging, unrelative or non-relative or absolute fixed soul. Now that's different. And if we use it in your language, there's no absolute, intrinsic, fixed, rigid, independent ego. In fact, when we have problems, it's because the ego has become too calcified. It's not adaptable. You know, I'm, I'm living in Indonesia, and just yesterday there was an earthquake, 5.6 magnitude, 160 deaths on the island of Java. You know, structurally, if things are too rigid, they collapse. Huh. So if our ego becomes too calcified, we become too bound to some 
set of parameter about who we feel we are, how we identify, and the world is a constant river of flux and change, then we have structural collapse. So that ego death is not the death of the ego. It's just a loosening so that the ego can adapt and actually showcase, become malleable and showcase its talent, in other words. So the emphasis that the Buddha was talking about when he says anatman, no soul, is no quote-unquote fixed soul. Surely there is a soul. Surely there is a soul. And I get this all the time. Like my book, my book, my book subtitle may be something like the pilgrimage of reclaiming the soul. So it's return with elixir, a pilgrimage of reclaiming the soul. And then I get all these looks, funny looks and comments, because uh, I'm a Buddhist therapist. There's no soul in Buddhism. What are you talking about? There's no soul. They just call it mind. They call it chitta. There's mind. And mind has an infinite continuity. And mind is the vessel upon which all the karmic imprints you know, basically travel or transmigrate. Now, there's no fixed soul. There's no fixed mind. There's no fixed ego. But there certainly is a soul. There certainly is a mind. And there certainly is an ego. If any of these things become calcified, rigid, reified, overly identified, you have symptoms and you have problems. But to get rid of the entire enterprise, where does that leave you? Without a soul, without a mind, without an ego? That seems to be an inverse problem on the other side of the spectrum. This word comes to mind, um, acceptance. And, and there, it seems like, the, the, I really like this narrative that you're putting out there. Certainly this thread about symptoms and the calcification of the, the personality or the, what, what Jung called the complex, you know, that there's this kind of callous, um, this bundle of energy, this kind of cancer, this uh, tension that is created intrapsychically and it manifests in a particular personality form. And there tends to be a trauma associated with this. Mm. And so some kind of trauma, some kind of too muchness or not enoughness in one's early experience oftentimes and so what you're saying is that there, there's not so much in, um, is, the, is the death of the ego. It, it's, the, it's the pure acceptance of the nature of reality. Of, is that tracking? Right? Like yeah, no, maybe it's one, it's half a dozen of one and, and six mm -hmm. of another. It's, maybe it's acceptance of the nature of reality, but it is a letting go of that sense of being fixed or identified. But so, that doesn't, those, neither of those six and a half dozen, neither of those obliterate the ego completely because the, the ego is the ordinary world in which we live. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just use Campbell, he goes ordinary world departure, goes into the underworld or the special world. That's no ego or that's no, that's the, that's the place of the shadow. That also breaks through to the archetypal world. 
that breaks through the, to the quote-unquote identitylessness. That breaks into the oneness. That breaks into the union. That breaks into the bliss. That breaks into God. Mm. But those are all momentary glimpses of the mountaintop. There is mm. the return. The return is the full completion of the cycle. And there, there can't be a return without a heroic self. And that heroic self is just a more malleable, more adaptable, and more proficient ego, actually. The hero is an ego. It's just one that has understood herself. It, it's, it is the hero or the heroine is one who understands their nature and yet claims personhood, claims individual skill, individual acumen, distinguishes itself. So, I mean, this is the problem I have with the language of egolessness or ego death is that too often it only ends up leaving the Shire and entering the special world, but it doesn't really capture the spirit of coming back home. We have to come back home. Hmm. And when we do that, we will be parents, we will be spouses, we will be siblings, we will be professors, we will be engineers. We will have our own unique predispositions. We will still have our own unique individual inclinations. They will just be imbued with the higher vision of the fluidity of the nature of reality. So in order to understand that, you really, from a Buddhist perspective, you really have to understand non-dualism. And non-dualism is another word that I have a lot of trouble with. There's all these kind of pop notions mm -hmm. that are flo floating around that, I mean, ego death is one of them. I guess non-dualism is another one that we have to talk about. But I mean, the more ways we talk about it, maybe the clearer it becomes. If we just back up a bit, we're talking about a staged model, a progression. This, this progression, we can use a number of different models just to Models are useful just to have these kinds of discussions with that intersect with a number of different disciplines. The solve et coagula from the alchemical tradition is one model. It underlies Joseph Campbell. It also underlies Jung. It also underlies the Tibetan alchemical process. It also underlies pilgrimage. It also underlies psychedelic experience. It's the one model I'm using in my book for this very reason. Solve et coagula, to dissolve be reconfigured and to be reborn. The, the non-dualism, my teacher, Bob Thurman, likes to call the pop version of this a cheap non-dualism. The cheap non-dual, non-dual means not to. So then your binary mind goes, well, if it's not two, it must be one. And the non-dual state of oneness is one that you can experience during climax, sexual climax. It's one that you can experience during a near-death experience. It's one that you can experience when you're high. It's one that you're, you can experience certainly on a psychedelic journey. It's one that you can experience in music. It's one that you can experience almost, there are all these kinds of flow states, quote unquote flow states that will get you to the oneness. And in that oneness, yes, it's true. The separate sense of identity for a moment disappears. There's just the music. I remember when I was 
maybe 20, I had my first meditative breakthrough. I was in Sri Lanka. I was in a long retreat with one of my teachers. I was out on a perch, a cliff face in the, in the woods. We had hours and hours to meditate in the woods by ourselves. I remember I was listening to the, to the birds. You know, and my whole life, I've had a constant inner chatter, you know, a monologue, inner monologue. So for everything that's, every stimulation that's happening, there is a, a counter critique of it, or there's a, an observation of it, or there's verbiage about it. But for a moment there on the cliff face, everything dissolved. There was just the bird song. There wasn't me and the bird song. There wasn't me having an experience of the bird song. There wasn't me having a, an insight or an enjoyment, appreciation. There, there was just the bird song. And it lasted not, couldn't have lasted very long. Of course, I'd lost track of time. It wasn't like I was keeping track of me losing myself while emerged or submerged in the bird song. It was just the bird song. And then, then moments later, I came out of it. And there was me going, oh, I had a moment of selflessness. <laughs> and suddenly the duality is there again. Suddenly the duality of me and the moment, me and the selflessness is there again. I thought it was a profound breakthrough. Of course, I over-assumed what I had experienced. And I had a quick chat with my meditation teacher that evening and put me in my place and said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So don't get carried away. You know, these are they are they are real breakthroughs, but they are just they're still just relative. It's not the end of the journey. You haven't had an enlightenment experience. You've had just a glimpse or a little taste. And mm -hmm. the point is, is about this non-dualism is that first you have dualism. You have me and the bird song. Then you have a moment where there's oneness. There's just the bird song. And you can arrive at that by way of meditative experience by way of psychedelic experience by way of sexual union by way of number of different pathways but that's this is what is the cheap non-dualism it's a little it's a little provocative but bob thurman is a provocative kind of teacher it's cheap because it's easy to get there and it's easy to to get misled as i was misled i i sort of was convinced that that's it if that's it then you're always in search of getting back to that place. You're always in search of getting that to that place where you're obliterated. And there is just the bird song or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. There's just the moment. I mean, that's what Eckhart Tolle has built his entire industry on. Mm -hmm. The now, there's just the now. I, I, find, I find it a little dangerous actually. There's just the now. I have a whole critique on the Eckhart Tolle of just the now. Because you hear nihilism in that? I hear marketing strategies. <laughs> oh, you're, you're cynical about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, there's, there's, there's like a half truth to it. Okay. The now is important. The now is important. The, the losing the ego boundary is important. Uh, it's, not, it's not the whole game. It's not the whole game. The, 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 when, you, when the inner monologue diminishes or disappears, you haven't arrived. That's not, that's, that's not it. That's not it. 
the thing is, is we've been programmed to believe if we, if we even have an experience like that, that that's it. And that's only the cheap non-dualism. What Bob Thurman is talking about is the not to is not, don't confuse the one with being the not to. The one is the easy. The not to is to understand that everything is relative, which means that the, the two don't lose their distinction. Wow. It's so worth unpacking. Yeah. The two don't lose their distinction. So I think I told you in the last conversation we had about this fan. Yes. It's such a, it's, it's a brilliant metaphor. And maybe it's really something The fan is made out of rice paper. The rice paper is transparent. <clears throat> On one side is ultimate reality, oneness. On the other side is conventional reality, plurality, multiplicity, individuality. Ordinary world. One side is the special world, one side is the ordinary world. We start out in the ordinary world with multiplicity, we turn the fan and you see that everything is open, everything is empty, everything is one. But then you turn it back and it's multiplicity or sometimes in the, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, it's called form and emptiness. So form is the ordinary world of mm. appearances and multiplicity, emptiness is its ultimate nature. You get on one side of the threshold and you see its ultimate nature is fluid, open, oneness. And you turn the fan and you see its multiplicity, form, emptiness, form, emptiness, form, emptiness, oneness, multiplicity, oneness, multiplicity, oneness. You, you start shaking that fan so intensely that the lines between or the distinctions between them disappear. And what you have is one reality with two sides. And the two sides are really important, not dissolving the distinction between the two sides is critical, is the real non-dualism. And why is that? Because we live in the world of distinctions. And if you just stay in half the journey, and if you just go for the ego death, and if you just go for the oneness, you're only completing half the journey. You're not coming back to form with the boon of insight into, into oneness. The whole journey is about dissolving in order to understand the fluid nature of things so that you can come back as an individual and make an impact in the marketplace. The whole point of going on a psychedelic journey is in, or, or a meditative journey or a pilgrimage is not to have what is called the space-like equipoise samadhi in the Tibetan tradition. There's actually these two movements. They are the Tibetan alchemical version of solvate coagula. One is called the space-like space meditative samadhi. And the other one is called the illusion-like aftermath samadhi. They're so beautiful. Space-like equipoise samadhi is when you meditate so deeply that you cross the threshold into the oneness and you see that nothing 
that appears exists the way it appears. Nothing is what it seems. Nothing is separate. Nothing is individual. Nothing is concrete. Nothing is absolute. And nothing is fixed. Even though it appears that way, you have a very deep ego death or phenomenon death or world disillusion experience. I'm looking outside right now. It's you know daylight here in Bali. There are houses and trees across the street. If I look at any one of them just casually, they appear to my mind as having substantial identity and separation. If I use critical reason, if I use psychedelic experience, if I use deep into meditative intuition, I can dissolve any appearance and find that it actually has a much more fluid nature. It's not findable in the way that it appears. That is called the illusion-like I'm sorry, the, uh, the space-like equipoise, samadhi. And what the equipoise means is that you would meditate so deeply on the not finding of the absolute independence. And you would meditate so deeply on that to subvert your intuition habit that concretizes and calcifies reality. Because it's not enough to just know the concept. You have to go deep into the wiring of your soul being and actually loosen the fixation, that what's called the atmagraha. Atmagraha is self-grasping. It is the deepest habit of mind. It is the, the grasping habit of mind that concretizes and calcifies both self and phenomenon. Mm. In the, in the space-like equipoise, samadhi, you're able to see the ego death of self and phenomenon and then you meditate on that so that you subvert the deepest reflex in your being. But that's only half the journey. People get stuck there going, I'm enlightened. I've seen, I've had a breakthrough. I've seen the deep nature of reality. There is nothing there. And some of the cheap non-dualism pop culture tribes out there get stuck there and then they'll start going. This is the danger. You'll appreciate this as a therapist. The danger <clears> of getting <throat> stuck stuck there in the oneness is that suddenly you can slip into nihilism. Because when you find the oneness and the multiplicity dissolves, you can have this erroneous belief that nothing then matters. The suffering also disappears. Once the separation disappears, they say the suffering disappears. There is a truth to that, but then there's also a very deep spiritual bypass to that. If it's all one, then nothing is real. It's all an illusion. It's all one and you're being deceived is actually all an illusion. Well, what's an illusion? My suffering is illusion. My trauma is illusion. My trauma is based on my self-identification. If I just have no ego and I have no self, then I have no trauma. Very dangerous thinking, extremely dangerous thinking. And you, you see this. You, I've had people chat to me. I've had discussions about this. The cheap non-dualism can completely dismiss people's relative forms of suffering because it so quickly just says, well, it, it's not real. It's not real. It's part of your delusion. It's part of your mistake. It's part of your mistaken identity. If you just had the breakthrough and saw the fluidity, all of that would drop away. 
I think that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. I think that that's dangerous thinking. People can have a tendency to go for the delicious, sexy, and very addictive and very alluring notion of ego death and oneness and only stay stuck in grasping, grasping at a false notion of reality that is separate from the world. There is a reason we don't stay in the special world. There is a reason we come home. There's a reason that's only half the journey. So we can, I'm gonna stop there because you've got a lot to say about this. I mean, part of the reason that you wanted to have this conversation was from the vantage point of the, of the mountaintop. So mm -hmm. we're talking about oneness as being the vantage point up there on the mountaintop. We can talk about how we got there. We can talk about how we descend. We can talk about the problems with descending. But for, for let me just close the loop here. The non-dualism, the cheap non-dualism is the false assumption or false description that oneness is all there is, that it obliterates the multiplicity. And as it obliterates the multiplicity, it also somehow obliterates all your suffering. And that the whole point is to stay there. And so what happens if you come off your meditation cushion as I did in Sri Lanka, or you come back from the ayahuasca trip in Mexico or Peru? Then you're hungry and searching for that mountaintop again. And that somehow being in your body and your relationship and the reemergence of some of your suffering is somehow wrong. You've done it wrong. You're not, you haven't fully gotten it. This this will bring up a whole conversation for us. So I'm just going to just invite you to come back in here. Thank you. Um, I can't help but think about as you're as you're speaking so eloquently about these this kind of dual structure. Um, <clears throat> so I th I think about the what we see as, as clinicians. And, um, and one thing that comes to mind is, is death. And if we're talking about ego death, I, I also think it's important for us to kind of tend to this idea of death and Im importantly or, or specifically about grief. And I, as you were talking about all this, I started to think about these numerous families that I've worked with that have suffered the loss of a child and their experience of grief and their struggle to accept reality um, and all of the ways in which uh, the enormous weight of this pain and despair is dealt with like a fish out of water slapping around breathless gasping for orientation and what that death feels like it, it 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 is it is something very similar and you know i i think that a lot of us may want to run off to the jungle and work with a shaman you know but um, not many people are volunteering you know for option two and so i Yet the inevitability of suffering in, in this way is 
um, something we don't like to talk about very much. But as a clinician, it's a very real reality, you know, the, the, the real depth of suffering that people carry. And, and so I, I don't know where that takes us, but I, I just want to offer that because I, I do think it has to be brought into some kind of um, ordinary, you know, and God, there's nothing ordinary about suffering or death of a child. Um, but there is also something very ordinary about suffering the death of a child. And in that, in that we will all suffer on some level, not to, obviously there's, there's a lot of complexity there. Um, but I, yeah, I wonder, where does that take us, this idea of, of that death also? Well, the first story that it, uh, that I associate with it was uh, one of my teachers, Guy Newland, who was a Buddhist scholar, and his main his main bread and butter is emptiness. He's actually written many books on emptiness. This is his central scholarship, his preoccupation. Um, emptiness being one of the most elusive and most profound teachings in all of Buddhism. It's all other teachings in Buddhism are considered interpretive, conventional, have to do with conventional reality. Whereas emptiness is the teaching, the main teaching on the ultimate reality. You, you need both. So like all the other teachings are in karma or in uh, compassion, meditation. Uh, his focus has been on emptiness. So he's a great scholar, he's committed 40 years of his life to expounding on the profundities of emptiness. Well, we had him you know, in my course the other day two years ago and he confessed you know his wife died of cancer his grief was so visceral palpable poignant and of course the unspoken assumption amongst the students listening to his story and then he did confess you know did confess that this is a routine reaction that he gets given his given his profile that most people assume because he's a great scholar and great practitioner and great proponent of emptiness that somehow somehow he would have eluded that grief mm he would have been able to transform it. In fact, what he said was like, he was so deep in grief, he couldn't look at his books, his Dharma books. Mm-hmm. He couldn't write. He could barely stand. He could barely get up. He loved his wife so much. And he really did confess, and I won't put words in his mouth, but my, my sentiment about it was, For a moment, none of that stuff mattered. None of that high philosophy on the, on the, you and I can sit here chatting like we know something about emptiness. But if one of our kids was in an accident or died, we wouldn't have a fucking clue, would we? We'd have no clue. We'd be so shredded, we couldn't speak. And this this is the pro this is the problem I have Miles, with 
cue my daughter. Hey. For the record. <laughs> I love. Hang on. Yeah. Give me a big hug. Hi. Huggy time. Hi. Hi there. Larry. Oh, big hug. Right on cue. I know. I got to keep talking, honey. Okay. Big squeeze. Squeeze, big squeeze. Take your time. Oh my gosh. That was like a let me see your head. I think your head feels amazing. It does. Yeah. Okay, honey. I love you. See you in a bit. Bye, sweetheart. Editing that's gonna be wild. Please don't edit it. That's please, <laughs> please keep that in because that's that came as a huge teaching, right? That yeah. came yeah. right on time. Yeah, that that's the point right there. That's the point right there, right there. That's the whole teaching right there. Don't edit that out. That's the teaching right there. <laughs> yeah, you see, I was just saying if we lost a child. None of this would matter. None of this conversation would matter. She loves her daddy. Do you think she wants her daddy to be, to, to be obliterated? Mm -hmm. Do you think her, she wants her daddy to be detached, aloof from the world? Do you think she wants her, do you think she wants her daddy stuck on a mountaintop spinning his mala beads going, I don't exist. I don't exist. No. <laughs> I know too much about development. I'm dangerous in this subject. <laughs> <laughs> I know things here. Um, I also feel things here. So I'm, I'm with you. You know, that's some of the most... I think I'm so touched by, you know, when one encounters the reality that one day, in some way, I will say goodbye. To all of it. And if that reality doesn't shake your core, then you're not paying attention. And my struggle here is that we we so poorly prepare people for the inevitability of this life. And so the holding this, you know, ego death, and not talking about death, to me seems incomplete, right? I, I don't think we can, we can, because um, to me, the, well, I don't know if I want to go there. I, I, I just want to say that um, we'll see where this takes us. You know, to love, to to love, yeah, is to grieve. And so, you know, I mean, I. I sit with families all the time who want to do anything they can to not feel 
so horribly shredded. And part of my work is to remind them that they are something you reminded me of, which was so beautiful. You know, if you're in a car wreck, you, you understand, you know, what your body needs. But when you're traumatized and grieving and suffering, we, you know, again, we don't have framework for that. And so the, um, you know, sh sh and this is where I like, you know, our, our connection with this kind of Greek dynamic, which is the, if you die before you die, you know, that, that, that to be exposed to one's death um, is to wake one up to how one lives. I hope. It's the key there is, if you're more detached, you haven't done it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> but but, but your, your point here is, is one of the things I want to emphasize kind of to return to what you were saying, which is that there's this person who's sh should be very well equipped to navigate. You know, our projection onto that is that you will be cross-legged lotus, fully accepting your, the weight of your grief, and you'll be able to metabolize that in this deep meditative state of enlightenment where you will levitate. And, and I, obviously I'm, I'm having fun there, but, but I, I, I think that's an important reminder that we're, there's no, you should be talking in terms of fully grieving something. Yeah. and fully expressing, expressing something as opposed to <coughs> imagining not feeling your pain. Yeah, that's the, that's the spiritual bypass. And I think you know, it can't really be so judgmental of people. I mean, pain avoidance is so deep and core in our being. Nobody wants to feel pain. But then to be converted or institutionalized by some sort of pop spirituality that actually aligns with your wish to avoid pain and then spiritualizes it as take this ayahuasca uh -huh. go on this pilgrimage you'll be you know if you do it right i mean imagine speaking to guy newland who's 40 years in 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 steeped in emptiness it if if doing it right meant he could just transcend his wife's demise or death i don't know if i want to live in that world yeah, that's that's like it, what antidepressants do yeah. And of course, that's why everybody's on an antidepressant, right? That's yeah, why, well, that's, a, that's, that's the, to, to your point that we don't study death and our, was, we've lost our wisdom cultures and we've been dissociated and removed from the cycles of life, cycles of nature, the natural cycle of life, the natural life cycle. Yes. I mean, listen, I had a near death experience. It shook me up to the core and I became borderline incapacitated for several weeks at a time i think i don't even know if i could talk to you about it or on another podcast but mm -hmm. <clears throat> i had a very deep and earth-shattering near-death experience that destabilized me and one of the lessons that grew out of it was an honest assessment that i was not prepared for death and of course, I've been around Tibetan Buddhism and I, I've read 
deep commentary by my teachers on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But I remember coming on, out of that three week dark night of the soul and really making a vow, a soul commitment to myself saying, I'm 47 years old. I escaped this one, but I'm not going to escape them all. One's going to be the real death and I'm going to leave everything behind and I'm not ready. And whatever, whatever time I have left, I need to really prioritize getting more familiar with the inevitability of my own demise. And was a commitment that I made. In fact, on pilgrimage, I had a very deep encounter with my teacher. I don't know if it's relevant here. I'll say it anyway. I mean, the backstory is that I found a lump in my testicle and it terrified me. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody that finds a lump these days gets terrified, right? He, he, you know, the whole medical industrial complex had totally failed me. I bounced from I bounced from one butcher to another saying they wanted to cut it out. And I recognized that part of my fear was that I didn't want to go under anesthesia. And then once I started looking at why I didn't want to go under, I started realizing that there was more implicit trauma related and tied to watching my dad die of cancer very horribly in my arms 10 years earlier. He was a man of 20, 250 pounds. And by the time he was done with his stint of pancreatic cancer, which he survived 16 months with, he was down to skin and bones. He choked on his own lung fluid, and died in my arms. I was very present with him at the time. I was very present with my dad. I remember and we were in Turkey at home. It was a very still day, sun was setting, light coming through. We had been in bed together holding each other and then he started the act of dying. I was prepared, the doctors had primed me for what to expect with his lungs and his fluid. And I kept whispering in his ear, let go, I'll take care of everything, let go. And it was one of these oneness zones it was a threshold. I crossed a threshold with my dad. We were in a zone. It wasn't me. It wasn't him. It was, it was fluid. It was oneness. It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. The last words that came across his, mouth, uh, his lips before the death rattle was, I see them. And I knew that he had made contact with the other side and that both his parents were there to pick him up. And it also felt very good that despite all the complex relationship I had with my father, who was quite narcissistic and alcoholic, all the, all the trauma I had experienced was in that moment subsumed by a lot of love. And that if there's one thing a child can give a parent who births them and brings them through is to be a good doula for their passing. That's the one thing that we should all commit to do for our parents is give, give them a good death. It took 10 years and a lump in my testicle for all the trauma that was also inherent in that one spiritual 
encounter to also emerge. Because at the time, it was one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever, ever experienced. It was fluid, and I was there, and it was presence like presence couldn't be described. And I was with my dad, and I helped him cross the, the biggest threshold a human being can cross in a life. And all the animosity and complex feelings became love. You can't ask for more spiritual experience than that. But 10 years later, was the shadow emerging that I also like watched a human being who was flesh and bone and terrified of his demise and unprepared and unwilling and unrelenting and kicking and barking and buckling and heaving and spitting and fuming and grasping for life in my own arms. That was also there. And what I had not really digested was its impact of just seeing a human being die in your own arms, a horrible medical death, drowning. And so of course I'm fucking terrified to go under and I'm terrified of my own fucking death. And I don't give a fuck what the Tibetan Book of the Dead says for goddamn, for, for me, I'm fucking terrified. So to flash forward, I'm on pilgrimage just last month. You know, the three week period of destabilization had me retching from the inside. I couldn't focus. I remember dropping my kids off at the school bus. My son, Bodie, who's eight, I would hold his hand. The bus would pull up. He'd get on the bus. And I'd start weeping on my walk home. And my wife found me in the closet on the floor, hysterically crying. Because I felt this thing in my testicle was telling my brain, I'm going to die. It's imminent. And I'm not ready to let go of my boy. And it took almost three weeks. Like, I wasn't functioning. And then eventually it subsided. And eventually I found a specialist all the way in Chicago, the one guy in the entire United States, it seemed, who wasn't going to butcher me on a fucking table and put me down, but actually took time to listen, understood that it was a trauma response, said he had some techniques he had been working on for 30 years that the industrial medical complex had overlooked. He's one of these guys that didn't want to fucking cut. He didn't, you know, he had a, he had a, he had a, he had a humane approach, which is a whole other conversation about our industry. But he listened, he held my hand. He f I flew out there with my wife, he took care of me. The medicine was compassion. Things shifted, the acute sense of trauma subsided. My commitment, my resolve to be more present with my own death 
this lump is still here and I wear it like a symbol now. I've managed to develop a relationship with this lump that it alerts me every day that I'm gonna die. And actually, because it's benign, maybe it's not such a bad thing it's there. Because I need, I need to keep this front and center of my awareness and my body has a teaching for me. It's teaching me every day. Don't forget, don't forget your commitment. Don't forget how scared you were. Don't be paralyzed, but don't forget. Try to work with this, try to remember. And of course, the Tibetan teachings are all set up to remember death is inevitable. The time of death is uncertain. And all you take with you at the time of death is your realization. It's not designed to paralyze you. It's designed to help you shift your priorities and to act with urgency. Same with the skulls at the, uh, the Orthodox Church in Greece where, they, with, where uh, Marescu was talking about this. Which, which church is it? I'm forgetting. I can't recall. Flash forward to a month ago, I'm in, I'm on pilgrimage with my teacher, Geshe Tenzin Zopa, who's a Tibetan master. We are at Varanasi, which is one of the single most long-standing, continually inhabited cities on the planet. It's the main sacred city of all of India. It's the place where every Hindu would like to die and be cremated on the, on the banks of the Ganges. I'm with my teacher, Geshe Tenzin Zopa, alone with him. He takes me to the what are called the burning gods, the cremation sites. There's two of them, Man and Karnaka, on the banks of the Ganges. It has had a continually burning flame there for over 3,000 years. That flame is tended to by the, the keepers of the flame who help with the cremations, active cremations on logs, right on the gods, right on the stairs leading down to the Ganges. I happen to be there on Diwali, which is the festival of lights. It's a, probably the biggest holy day of the year in India. There's no way to get to the burning stairs and burning sites without walking. We walk through thousands and thousands and thousands of people are conglomerating there. It's very tight. It's sensory overload. There are buses and planes and trains and millions of people, and it's like loud and Festive India is like overwhelming to my nervous system. And I'm walking down these narrow pathways following my teacher. And there's a, a teaching in Tibetan Buddhism called the Wheel of Life, which is the teaching on the multiple multiplicity of realms in which souls are reborn. The hell realms, the animal realms, the human realms, the hungry ghost realms, et cetera. I gave that talk at the Rubin that you enjoyed. I'm walking down these alleyways led by my teacher who's doing mantras. We're on our way to the burning gats and I'm just overwhelmed by the magnitude and the intensity and the stimulo input. And I'm thinking to myself, he's leading me into hell, going down into hell. 
this is the active imagination that I'm having on the journey to the burning guts. My teacher is leading me into the pit of hell. You turn a corner and there they are, there are the burning gods. There are the bodies laid out by family members on the pyre. We got so close, They're close enough to touch one of the bodies. They pulled a ceremonial cloth back and there was the face of a grandmother with her gray hair and her wrinkled skin. They lit that thing on fire. My teacher is doing mantras and he doesn't bat an eyelash. He is in, he's in. And I'm shooken to the core, I'm weeping. I'm weeping because yeah, man, all this other stuff that I've been through about death and fear and the unknown, and the inability to let go. Now death is in your face. It's not packaged like in the United States where you, you know, everybody's beautified in a box and there's like 15 minutes so you walk over a body in a casket. Then it's closed and, and tightly packaged and put away. It smells, death smells. People are wailing, the bodies are crisping, the smoke is bellowing. Yeah. And you smell it and it's unavoidable. And I'm shooken and Geshe Tendon Zopa's in. He's in. He's unafraid. He's not moving. He's not, he's not fli fl flinching, flinching. He's not flinching. He's unflappable. He later grabs me and brings me around to another little cove so that the burning gods are still within vision, but we're not, we're not in it, in it. And I confessed him. I say, Geshe-Tala, geshe been so scared about death. It's been a huge preoccupation since I had that near-death experience, which I did tell him about, but I'm rehashing like death is imminent. I feel it in my body. I have this symbol in my body that reminds me I'm going to die. And I feel really afraid. And he starts telling me some something about karma and something about nothing to worry about and something about death is, oh, he says, death is like, death is like changing your clothes. Death, he says, death is like changing your clothes. And then he says, death is like checking into a guest house and checking out the next day. And you know what I did? I said, Geshe, I know that, but I don't feel that. And I pushed him, I pushed him. I, I just said, I, I don't want to hear that shit. I am afraid. I am afraid. I don't want to hear words. The words, I've heard the words for a very long time. I've read the words and I've taught the words. And there is a disconnect in my being. And his eyes open up. He grabs my hand and he says, do you have devotion to me? I said, yes, Geshe, I have pure devotion for you. He says, I am not afraid of death. If I'm not afraid, I have confidence. And if I have confidence, I can give that confidence to you if you believe in me. 
and he brought me close and he said, when you die, all you have to do is think of me and I will be there for you and I will help you cross. And I won't do that once. I will do that life after life. I will be there with you. And my God, I believed him. I believed. That got into my being. That got down into the guts. That I won't be alone when I die. I won't be alone kicking and screaming and huffing and puffing and buckling and cringing. His love will be there for me. His confidence will be there for me. And my belief in him will be enough. And then he just really embraced me right there on the river, just really deeply. He kept whispering in my ear the way I whispered into my own dad's ear. He kept whispering, I will be there. I will be there. I will never abandon you. After that moment, he said, if you have pure devotion, everything is possible. And for those that have no devotion, nothing is possible. And that, that is a very, very, very deep, 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 deep teaching. Devotion is something that's very deep to our being. It is, I guess we would use words like faith or confidence or conviction. When he gave me the little teaching about karma and about the guest house and about changing your clothes, that was all information. It lacked conviction. Mm -hmm. And what he did, what my teacher did was he was able to find the one asset that I have, which is my devotion. And he was able to link that and create conviction or confidence, borrowed conviction or confidence. He was able to make a neural link or a neural association for me. And that is a true master. I mean, that is a true master. Because I was in that, at least in that moment, I was able to really feel that the fear could be transformed. It might be possible. It might actually be possible. It might actually be possible to work through the fear and actually feel the courage and conviction that it is a gateway. All the stuff he was saying was of course true. We all read it in, in different traditions. We all read about these kinds of passing over, passing through, changing clothes. We all know that we can, it's, we can parrot it, but he was able to tap and create a land bridge between my devotion and his confidence so that I could feel it so I could actually feel it. I don't know where that leaves us. I guess I really needed to talk about it. 
it's, a, it's one of these very, it was one of a number of very profound, visceral, deeply impactful experiences that I've had on pilgrimage with my teacher. And I mean, maybe the bigger conversation, I mean, I think death is important for you. You're, you're on a, you're on your own hero's quest through the death rebirth. I mean, there's a reason that you want to talk about this. Maybe I can ask you before we move on, what about you and your own? experience in and around death and passing through. Yeah, I first want to honor and just take a moment to breathe you in from all these things you've shared um, with uh, so openly and vulnerably. You honor, I feel honored to be a listening partner in your to hear you and to receive you. Um, yeah, it's hard not to, because I kept thinking about something you said earlier uh, regarding kind of this sacred obligation that we have to midwife um, those who are moving through the portal of death in the same way that we were midwifed into our lives. <laughs> and... Um, and I, so, death so doula. yeah, 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 we are a death doula. So, yeah, I mean, you're asking me something that you have partnered with me on before. Um, and one of the words that comes to mind is deathlessness. It's something that you and I have discussed, and certainly you, the deathless. Um, so, I, I have had the experience of, um, you know, the, the way you were talking about your father and that struggle to let go, the, the, the wisdom that you communicated to him to let go, and your demonstration of his struggle you know, to, to surrender and the resistance, you know, it's not somebody I can project onto your father, and you can, of course, body check me, but it, it I'm assuming with your, you know, kind of note of his narcissism, um, you know, considering and preparing for his own death was probably not part of his repertoire. And so there's a kind of violence um, in the experience, and... I think there is a violence in the experience. Uh, I, I just happen to be somebody who's experienced that violence before. And I don't think that's unique. I mean, if my friend Pittman used to say that the only thing that really brings us into our life is our death. And so I started thinking about, like I mentioned Midnight Gospel, and I was thinking about this one. It's a beautiful show. And it's one of my favorites, actually. And in one of the episodes, um, they're talking about the, the act of using formaldehyde to preserve the body and this practice and why it's done, you know, for, and how unfortunate that practice is. 
You know, we, we formaldehyde a body and we box it in something beautiful and we bury it. And it's, it's interestingly related to preservation. Um, you know, it tends to be for us, not for them, you know. And, but I, I do think it's a good extension of, or at least image or um, revelation of our relationship to our own death, you know, in our culture. So, so when I kind of reflect on that experience, you know, it, it, it is um, a wildly overwhelming experience to let go of this life and to encounter all that you would grieve if, if one did that. Um, and it is a, um, it's the most powerful experience that I never imagined could happen. You know, this was not, I mean, and I have played in this playground for a long time. You know, as you said, I've read the words, you know, like I've, and that's what was so interesting. I even talked to a guy named Walter Hanengraf, you know, about the hermetic folks, you know, that were, and what they were describing was something very familiar, you know, related to our conversations and um, this, this kind of wild experience of deathlessness, you know, and, and, you know, there is awareness, but it's not the typical awareness of our ordinary consciousness. And so there's, but then to experience a body, what a body feels as it encounters the, um, the, uh, the, its experience of death, you know, of it, it being finite, of, 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 and whatever that brings up about duality or whatever, like I don't need to go into metaphysics, but whatever this body is, it has the capacity to die, and and it's it, it's oh, it's terrifying. I mean, that's that's what I, I I got into understanding religion, and it's really funny that we learn about these states of terror. And we write them off as if we can kind of meditate ourselves out of them. I love this thread that you're getting into, you know, that no terror is terrifying. Rudolf Otto said that, um, what did he call it? The mysterium tremendum et fascinans. You know, this ancient reference, you know, to the thing that terrifies and fascinates you. And we get the fascination part, but the whole death thing... um, In small ways, you know, like we're having to like take substances in the jungle and have these experiences. Like, obviously, our culture is not preparing us for the reality of our existence. We're creating it in religious spaces. We're finding ways to merge with those modes of consciousness and alternate states of knowledge in order to encounter the, the truest essence of this reality. And, and we're ill-prepared to make sense of that. And, and it's one reason why I love the Tibetan tradition. And I've, I've had all these posts on the YouTube channel about, or okay, several, about people honoring this kind of split that you and I have talked about regarding what, what, was the, what was the Greek thing and what was the kind of ancient in Asia, you know, what was the Tibetan thing. So, um, I, I, as you were talking, I kept thinking about the moment of surrender to to actually have died. And this is not this is not a drama, you know, this is not some idea, you know, 
to have died, to grieve that death, to know that whatever it is is no more, and to struggle with that, um, to feel into that and to let it take you over, to to experience the totality of um, your love and your loss and your grief and your hurt and your finite existence. <laughs> I just, like, I am not playing around. I am not meditating for 15 or 20 minutes. You know, I, I am working in spaces where there is deep suffering, the darkest suffering that's imaginable, stories I will never repeat. And how we contend to that, how we contend with that as human beings who just navigate the world of trauma. But this one piece, I, I don't know why it is, you know, we talk a lot about trauma and that's great, you know, but what about this piece? You know, what about to fully exist is to encounter the reality of your own existence, which means you're going to die as you know it. And that there are these traditions who have been born throughout time that co coalesce around that experience and practice with awareness what that means and how we can pass those um, experiences and... and um, and awarenesses through our, our lineages, um, which can and can't happen, right? Because you need to have the experience. And so somebody's going to have a near-death experience or a trauma, or they'll use these substances, or um, you'll do a long-term therapy. You know, I think that, um, intent, as you said earlier, states of sexual union, and um, there are these opportunities to experience but, but I, I think, I, personally, I think that, um, you know, one of the reasons why ego death is so much in our, in our culture and in our kind of pop conversation, um, it's because the conversation about death is lacking. And our religious traditions need to um, orient us and prepare us for how to recognize this inevitability. So I, I just, I, you know, to go at your question directly, I noticed the, 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 the felt experience of surrendering to the letting go, which can't be codified in any kind of language system. It's like riding a bike. You know, like you have to feel it in your body and when you do, when you have, you have. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. I mean, I think that's the the shadow or the limitation about knowing too much is if it's not combined with tangible experiences, then it leaves us knowing too much and really still being afraid. Yeah. So you know, 
shortly after the uh, three week stint of the near death experience mm -hmm. where I was destabilized, I, I did eventually, you know, have the procedure. And then the, the first thing I thought is I'm going to, I'm going to have, this is finally the right time for a psychedelic experience because I have pure motivation. I have all my background. I have the right mindset. I identify the right setting, the right cohort, the right guide. Mm -hmm. Spent a lot of time preparing for it. I'm not one that dabbles. Um, that's another experience that I'm currently writing about in the book because it is was really profound and to your point, I think what it does is it did provide direct access to the layers of mine troubled, deeply troubled and anxious about mortality. Mm -hmm. And to cut to the to cut to the to the chase, there was a very deep surrender. There was a very, very deep visceral experience and feeling of letting go in the death process during a intense psychedelic experience designed purposefully to work on the fear of death. And this happened between my near-death experience and the destabilization, the procedure, then, then came a psychedelic experience, and then the one I talked about recently on pilgrimage. So mm -hmm. I guess to your point, I made a vow to include the experience of letting go part of my daily experience in like a regular meditation practice. But then I complemented this with very deep work with one psychedelic experience that I'm not opposed to having others, but I'm also not going to stack them like some people do. That's just not right for me. I needed a very purposeful, deep accessing experience to give my body, not my mind and not my thinking layer of brain, give my body a visceral experience of letting go into the transition. And coupled with then the moment I described with the teacher about the reassurance. And what does reassurance do if not allow you to surrender? Mm -hmm. So now there are these very two, there are two very deep imprints, one from the psychedelic experience and one from the guru devotion that are now baked into the nervous system and accessible. So when I return to daily practice or daily contemplation, I actually have a home base in my body, a reference point to draw on. Otherwise, it's just the word letting go. And how often do we cheaply hear that every day? But actually, I have had an hour, at least an hour of letting go amidst the psychedelic experience and at least a very profound moment with my teacher of like him reassuring me that all I have to do is call on him and reflect on him. And what am I calling up and what am I reflecting on? So, yeah, I mean, I think a couple 
observations about the con the conversation. Number one, our entire civilization is going through death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. There's no, there is no one who's immune to this conversation. No one, there may be, maybe only a select few of people have had the near death experience or had a medical exposure or had a, a loss, a significant loss that's acute while they're listening to this, but our entire civilization is going through the dissolution phase right now, archetypally. So we're all swimming in the sea of death right now. We're swimming in the sea of dissolution right now. Whether we choose to see it that way or not, that's, that's definitely happening. Then there's the more poignant instruction that you're pointing to, which is we live in a culture that doesn't want to face this. And some of us are in conversation with other cultures that wanted to actually quite the inverse, wanted to live with the notion of death and the cycles of life as part of their daily awareness and part of their own spiritual daily spiritual practice. And the Tibetan, the Tibetan tradition is, it's one of them, it's truly, I mean, it's hard to go find, as I mentioned to you in a fire, fire podcast, it would be hard to go find like a living Egyptian master right now. <laughs> right. But you can find the Tibetan masters that through and through have trained. I mean, the, one of the reasons that Geshe Tenzin Zopa has the confidence that he embodies is because he does very, very deep, deep visceral work around dissolution and rebirth. It's part of his daily experience. He lives from that place. He's not living from the intelligence. He's living from the embodiment. And there's no, there's no bullshitting living from embodiment. You're just, you either, you're either there or you're not. So yeah, I mean, I think this is something that psychedelics can offer an entry point into, but then are you going to make your psychedelics your everyday experience? And now we're in the part of the conversation where we're talking about the return home. Mm -hmm. Once you have a breakthrough in psychedelic experience, or once I had a breakthrough on pilgrimage, because I acquaint the two actually sacred journeys of different forms. Once you have the oneness, what do you do? And I think there you, you, you can't stay. You can't stay there. You have to now return to life. And you can't have a dissociative split. You have to bring what you can of the inspiration or the breakthrough or the insight or the visceral embodiment. You have to try to bring that and build a new world with that, or build a daily practice around it or daily conversation around it, or daily remembering of it. I mean, that's a very powerful word instead of meditation, a daily remembering. Mm -hmm. But in order to have the remembering, like the coming together, you first have to have that very profound breakthrough, that visceral breakthrough. That's what you remember. That's what you meditate on. That's what you use as the cornerstone for the new mandala that you built in life. I mean, and, and just to put some kind of container on this, couldn't we say that a breakthrough moment is an experience 
that challenges the reality. It's a parsimonious way to say it, right? Like, so you've had an experience that disrupts, dismembers, dislocates one's entire understanding of who one is and what reality is. And that <laughs> deserves to be taken seriously. And by creating ritual and process to remember, that experience is a religious endeavor where the individual is taking a direct experience and relating to it on a consistent basis to bring their, you know, reminder or symbol um, of that reality into this reality. Yes. Fair to say. Good. And I think that's the difference between staying in the oneness and and misunderstanding the oneness as the totality of your journey. It's like the return home is back into multiplicity. It's back into identity. It's back into relationality. It's back into form. It's back into designation. It's back into relationship. It's back into all your ugly feelings. It's yeah. back into... <laughs> yeah, totally. It's back into how you responded to you know, rejection for your entire life and what, the way your body responds in those moments. Yeah. That you're going to be encountering in the same way that you did before. And the question to me then that I think you're bringing into this is, are you going to be the experiencer of that who is whose reality has only been that or whose reality has been this and that. Yeah. But we'll forget. We will forget. And also look, it's the story I bring up has a couple of points that I hope people really digest. Ten years it took for the shadow to reemerge. Mm -hmm. If you had caught me 10 years ago, I would have said I had the most spiritual experience during my dad's demise, mm -hmm. his passing. I wasn't bullshitting myself. It really was. It was transcendent. But it took 10 years for another aspect of it to reemerge. And so people people have to be aware, like you can go to Mexico and Peru and you can do these intense things. But not everything in your life is obliterated. We're very complex creatures. There's a lot of alleyways and back, back shadow doorways, passageways in the complexes of our mind. Things linger. There's residue. I may, I may take these two encounters and process them for years as I try to relate both to my fear and to the exquisite reassurances of relaxation into the flow of the transmigration or transition. They have to be in conversation in my gut, in my belly. 
in order to get to where Geshe Tenzin Zopa is, I, it may take years and years and years of having this conversation between, yes, I'm honestly afraid. And yes, I've had these moments where I see that it's going to be okay. Yes, I'm really afraid. Yes, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yes, I'm really afraid. And like the honesty of that, that suddenly that becomes a worthwhile spiritual practice. And that's what the return looks like to me. That's what the return looks like to me. For other people, the return looks like, I mean, in the Buddha's biography, his return looked like, I've had the breakthrough into the nature of reality. He was seated under the Bodhi tree. He saw reality just as it was. And he thought to himself, it's ineffable and inconceivable. No one will understand if I try to utter anything about this reality. It will go over everybody's head. I should just stay here meditating quietly with my own realization. And he looked out onto a lotus pond. He saw countless lotuses under the water line. He saw one or two just about to breach. And he did see one lotus that had fully emerged. And he thought to himself, if even just one living being could taste the amrita, the elixir that I have tasted, then it would be worthwhile for my teaching. And this starts his 40-year endeavor to teach what he saw out of compassion for even just one living being. And that's what his return looks like, because he's not, he's not going to just stay on the mountaintop in the oneness. He's also going to return. He has to share something. He has to make a contribution. And of course, his, this is why I think it's important not to get so fixated on the ego part. How does the Buddha show up? Buddha shows up as an individual with a style of teaching, with a vision of how he's going to do it. Just like you're a different kind of therapist that's going to have a way of holding space for clients and a way of delivering a kind of salient message or poignance at just the right time. There's something about returning as a more flexible, capable ego. And I just think that that, that side, that's a whole other arc of the journey. That's not... That's not leftover bits. That's a whole other. That's a whole other. That's half the book. You don't, you know, you can't just read it to the midsection. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you let, let's let's go there for a minute too. Like, what what do you? What are the important? Like all of your teachings, both your experiential and your intellectual and your, you know, lineage how does one come down from the mountaintop and navigate through these complexities? This last pilgrimage, I've been on nine pilgrimages in my life. Four of them have led this last one to the fall in India with Geshe-Tenz and was, I, I don't say this lightly, it, it involved several miracles uh, at the risk of seeming 
preposterous, like miracles happen. I, I, I'm turning my life over in the last few years. One of the reasons I moved to Bali and one of the reasons I gave up living in a mega city, one of the reasons I gave up a very established practice and network is I'm following the magic. I'm moving from left brain to right brain. I'm, the death process that has that I have gone undergone personally is also an invitation to leave behind a particular kind of fixed world that I inhabited for a very long time. I'm 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 off the beaten path. I'm following the magic. I'm following the signs. I'm turning myself over to the right brain. I'm turning myself over to the archetypal language. I'm into mythic the mythic dimension. I'm living this stuff, and there's no security in it. There's no There's no there's no firm ground in it. You know, for, literally, I'm in Bali now for the four, last four or five months. I don't have a place to stay. I, I don't have, you know, I don't have this or that. Like, the, I gave up nice, comfortable ground, familiar, predictable shire for a chance to taste the magic. And the pilgrimage was magic. There were miracles on the pilgrimage. But coming back is not easy. It has not been easy. And in fact, I've been tracking the conversations with the 30 other pilgrims that came back from the pilgrimage. And you think like, you know, there were very deep breakthroughs for people, which is why I have very often said, and I've written about the fact that pilgrimage is like a psychedelic journey. It's just mm -hmm. not as, it's just not as intense or radical. Mm -hmm. It's two weeks on the on the ground. You're at sacred sites that have legacies and lineages of three thousand years. You're with an enlightened master or a very highly realized master. People don't like that word or get intimidated or skeptical. These are curated experiences that take me a year or two to design. They're designed to have a bit of begin. They're designed based on Joseph Campbell. They're designed that you summon a mountain, a sacred mountain, not at the beginning midpoint towards the end you summit a great mountain you go into a cave at some point you pass through a river at some point these are these are things i work on that may not seem obvious to people but it's curated people have very profound breakthroughs on this and Not the least of which the central one is being around someone who's as transformed as Geshe Tenzin and as as immediate, has an immediate impact on people. But I've been tracking the pilgrims since we return and inevitably all of them are confronted with a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. A lot of this stuff, which is why I've said now for the third time, a lot of this stuff, it, it gets kicked up like the latent shadow of my father's demise got kicked up 10 years later, like after pilgrimage, before pilgrimage, there are challenges and we are in much need of a lot of preparation. During pilgrimage, there are challenges and there are ways to work with immediate, the immediacy of your experience while on pilgrimage. But after pilgrimage, there are also tremendous things that get stirred up. One of the common experiences is that people are finally have found home. They know their purpose, they find their tribe, they find their teacher, they have a taste of what life could be like lived from a different orientation. In Tibetan Buddhism, it's called a mandala. A mandala, as you know from Jungian, uh, your Jungian studies is like a sacred environment. 
we are in for two weeks a sacred environment. And that gives us access to things inside of us we may not have been aware of before. And it feels intensely blissful. It feels intensely open. It feels intensely safe. And you're privy to something that you may have not recognized before inside of you. But you have to leave the mandala. You have to leave the mandala and that is hard mm -hmm. because you go home. And one of the things I talk about with people on the night or two nights before we leave is once you have tasted this nectar, once you have summited the vista on the mountaintop, how is it that you think you're gonna convey that to your wife, spouse, or children when you return and they ask you the inevitable question, how was your trip? You see, people, people that don't go on pilgrimage, people that don't summit the mountain, people that don't taste the elixir, people that don't have the psychedelic journey have no way of relating to you. And to add to that, people who have suffered greatly with the death of a loved one eventually don't have everybody saying, oh, how are you? People stop caring. They don't, they don't they're not. And so I, this is the profound. Um, so astute of you to bring that up because the inverse is actually true. It is incredibly alienating. Yeah. Who is prepared to empathize with you when they have not lost a child? How can people empathize with you when your entire life has been shattered? Mm -hmm. And so you find yourself alone. You find yourself bewildered. You find yourself without footing. You find yourself without a tribe. You're falling back to the ground after reaching the moon. And sometimes you arrive at friends, family, loved ones, children, and they're, they're in proximity, but now there's an even greater chasm than before you left. Because you've trained, you've changed so dramatically in just two weeks. And I imagine when you take a psychedelic experience and you maybe do five ceremonies and you return, you've changed so dramatically. Mm -hmm but everybody else has sort of just stayed where they are. And so one of the things I talk about is that, you know, you cannot convey this to other people. You cannot look for that mirror in their eyes where they understand. You have to, you have to eliminate that as a desire from your unconscious, your unconscious wish that they understand what you, that you cannot find the words. So then how do you deal with the chasm? Well, you said it earlier in the conversation, it is the most fundamental aspect of the return, which is the love. Mm -hmm. You just focus on the love. You don't focus on trying to get people to understand. You just focus on bringing some aspect of the love that you experienced into your relationship or the spaciousness or the safety or the recognition or whatever it might be that becomes your boon. You don't have to tell people and they don't have to understand. You just bring the embodiment back. Mm. You just bring the embodiment back. 
in my case, if it's confidence, like Geshe Tenzin Zopa reassuring me that I will be okay, gives me some modicum or visceral experience of reassurance or confidence. Now, when I'm sitting with clients and they're going through the dark night of the soul or they're going through some approximated, you know, destabilization, it's not what I say to them that matters. It's the embodiment and the space I hold for them where there's nothing that they can go through that I'm afraid of. That's what he did for me. And that's what happened on that fucking bank of the Ganges. It wasn't his words. Hmm. I told him I didn't care about the words. I knew the words. And he dropped into something and he pulled me into an experience. So just the other day, I'm on the phone with somebody, a client, and that's, there it is. That's the moment. They're like, spouse is cheating on them. They have a baby. They have this going on. Like, their world is coming undone. They are not prepared. They are in the throes of the death process. They're in the archetypal death process. Not in the physical death process, archetypal death process, symbolic death process. And my being is okay with it. Like I, I can be with them. I'm not flinching. I'm not trying to find silver lining. I'm not trying to work around it. I'm not trying to suggest, oh, in the end, it will be okay. This is for your growth or some fucking pat bullshit like that. One of my mentors, psychoanalytic mentors, he said, you know, what people really want is to know that you will go into the depth of hell with them. Yeah, they want you to say, this is the worst moment of your entire life. Not just say it. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people know that they should say that. We're all trained in the first semester of graduate school how to do empathic, <laughs> reflective listening. <laughs> Which is why the graduate school program has a big fucking flaw, right? Because you're, you're taught what to say. Yeah, totally. Not necessarily, you're not thrown into a rite of passage where you almost have to die in order for you to fucking be confident to be somebody's death doula. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe, you know, we'll get together and we'll fucking really do a training program for therapists and maybe it'll involve psychedelics and pilgrimage and it'll be outside the academic institution and we'll fucking train another generation of really truly competent people that are human first and experience centric. Mm -hmm. Because there's too many fucking concepts. Mm -hmm. At the tune of six years and a quarter of a million dollars. some fancy letters that none of none of which makes you competent <laughs> yeah no it, it doesn't and those wisdom traditions they knew that i mean you know that sarcophagi in egypt that was a you know why is it not uh, in the great chamber why is it not adorned like it's supposed to be as a royal uh, a, a royal uh, tomb Possibly because it wasn't a royal tomb. Possibly it was a ceremonial, ritualistic place for the 
visceral training or initiation of a death rebirth process that would prime someone to become actualized and truly embody the vision of a leader. Mm-hmm. That culture is built on very different assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you what you and I we're we're having this conversation and I love your podcast and we bring in for this reason because we are also we we are also on the vanguard as, as, as we watch our culture degenerate and dissolve, we are also thinking about how we would like to rebuild it, mm-hmm. reclaiming what's missing, reviving what has been lost, re-envisioning where we'd like to go. That's why I love our conversations. That's what I love about what you do. I'm just, I, I can only imagine that's why your, your listeners tune in. They want to be part of a revival, of a renaissance, where intellect, concept, certainty, and science is remarried with mythology, esotericism, practice, embodiment, so that we can actually recover something in our lives, so that we can live well, so that we can die well, so that we can live purposely, we can die purposely, and that we can revive a vision of our future that actually we want our children to have. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, it's cool to hear you reflect that. Thank oh, you. That's how I, I mean, I came across your work almost a year ago and listening to every podcast that you put out and having my affection for you. That's, that's what I see. Uh, that's what I see we both trying to, to do. We have such common interests, Jung, es- esotericism, meditation, psychotherapy, Campbell, psychedelics, not only having conversations, but being vulnerable and really wanting to really see and hold space for people. Mm-hmm. What's it all for, if not for a rebuild and a reboot and a reset? Of course, that's what's motivating us. Well, and this, this is the, that interesting thread, which I certainly want to, want to pick up on, because I think there's a deep responsibility for those who can to step in to this part of the process when our culture is obviously waking up to these alternate states of consciousness and knowledge, and working with how we fold that into our experiences. Um, I know there are so many concerns about how we do that. Uh, but I certainly think that my role in that process involves um, being very attentive and mindful to this kind of thread we're connecting on, kind of coming down from the mountaintop, that, um, that we have a deep responsibility to, um, to help remind people to... Um, to remember this inheritance and to to have the experiences that they have and then find ways to incarnate that in their daily life. That a g- really wise friend of mine, um, who I'm going to interview, um, Doug Lynham, on the podcast, he um, he's definitely a, a, a brother in the in the process. 
and we talked about having a real attentive presence with absolute acceptance, unconditional love, and radical forgiveness, and creating a, a process in your life where those aren't just ideas, they're, they're, they're principles by which one lives one's life, and they're lenses through which one sees one's daily and hourly and minute-by-minute minute lived experience. And so I, I, I really resonate with this idea of the return um, and, and how, we can, how we can bring that into our, our lives in, in, in wherever we live um, to try to affect change on a greater level where we are actually contributing and bringing more love, compassion, and presence, and acceptance. Yeah, it's, it's a nice way to close the loop and close the conversation, because yeah. I, I think it will actually open a door for a future conversation. If we'd have me back, the, uh, what, where we didn't go exactly was part of the chapter of a book that I'm, the book that I'm writing has this <clears throat> convergence or conversation, if you will, between psychedelics and the Tibetan tradition, what each, what each shadow might be, mm -hmm. but also how they can be complementary. Oh, that's, that's a great conversation. Wow. Yeah, because I, I can't think, wait to read what you say about this. <laughs> well, just, it's a work in progress. It's something that we mm -hmm. can have a, a conversation about. And we can also, I mean, I've already asked this of you, maybe we can put a conference on because I think that there are some things that Tibetan Buddhism can do to create both the on-ramp for a psychedelic experience and the off-ramp, because mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about the return, the return needs an infrastructure for integration, mm -hmm. which is often missing That's right. after a psychedelic experience. People will come home from a pilgrimage. See, I, I mean, my pilgrimage has an infrastructure, right? I, I'm, I'm not just dropping people into a two-week experience where then they're left to get on a plane and go home, no. I have an orientation that leads up. I have an orientation to re to 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 reemerge or reimmerse back in civilization. But I also have an institute or a school where people have community. It's there's an ecosystem. I have one-on-one -on -one therapy. I have mm -hmm. group participation. I bring the llama back in into my cyber school, my wisdom school, if you will. So there is this sense that it's about lifelong integration. Mm -hmm. It's not just a momentary deep dive, a radical shift. It's like preparation, initiation, return. You need all three. You need all three. And the return, there's infrastructure. There's thought to it. There's safety nets to it. There's touchstones for it. There are practices for these things. Uh, that assist and help in metabolization. So I'd love to continue that conversation and maybe we even invite a couple more people to, 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 to into a panel about it. That's one of the hopes that I have between your institute and mine. Maybe we can do something like that because I think this is a really rich and timely conversation. Yeah, agree. I think psych psychedelics is blowing up, but I think that the psychedelics has a shadow and a potential spiritual mm -hmm. bypass. I think the 2,500 year old tradition of Tibetan Buddhism has something to say about preparation for deep experiences of the oneness or the insight into the nature of reality and its return. And I think psychedelics are here to stay. So I think 
people in the Tibetan Buddhist world may eventually be receptive or curious. Mm -hmm. So there's this very important synergy that I think would be well worth our effort to continue the conversation around. I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, and I, I think this one thread to this thing you're talking about, spiritual bypass, I know we've got more to say on that, but um, going to a monastery can be a spiritual bypass. You know, yeah. I think I think that sometimes this kind of arena is like we're shadow projecting all over the place because, yeah, I mean, you can you can sexually bypass. You I mean, can just, do, yeah. You can do bypass can happen. Can, a bypass can happen anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. You can have your your clients and my clients can be spiritually bypassing in the first six totally. weeks of therapy until you crack the whip and tell them what the fuck is going on. Well, look, I, I want to be sensitive to your time, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, the, obviously that invitation is open and received and re reciprocated and appreciated, and um, the love is felt and returned, and uh, and man, thank you for this time, hanging with you, letting us in on your new book, and you know, just meandering together too, and um, it is always a gift to uh, to connect with you, and thank you for your presence in my own process of coming down from the mountaintop. Yeah. It's like, uh, don't edit that little moment out with your girl, okay? <laughs> that, that was that, that's the big teaching of return home right there. That was the big teaching of return. So don't edit that out, okay? I won't. Man, enormous love, Miles. See Take care. You too. Sure.